in our last episode. One of a string of burglaries south of Harrisburg in 1925 led to the arrest and trial of one of Berger's most notorious gangsters, a man known by the pseudonym Steve George. In 1926, Berger married his next wife, Bernice. A Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger By Gary Deneal Chapter 14 Trouble in Heron Due largely to the efforts of Heron newspaperman Hal Trevelyan, evangelist Howard S. Williams came to Heron to conduct a series of revivals, the purpose being to heal the wounds caused by the recent clan and anti-clan conflict. Judging from those who stepped forth to proclaim their part in the recent hostilities before asking the Lord for forgiveness, the revival was a success. So pleased was Trevelyan that he published a booklet, Persuading God Back to Heron. In it, the Bible-bearing Williams was favorably compared with the late, unlamented gunman S. Glenn Young. Doing his part to bring about reconciliation, State's Attorney Arlie O. Boswell struck from the court docket 145 cases resulting from the Klan War. In later years, Boswell would cite the landmark Castry and Elias decisions as his reason for dismissing the liquor cases. In its ruling of February 19, 1925, the Illinois Supreme Court sharply defined the limitations of a search warrant. Three jugs of liquor had been found in the home of Sam Castry of Rockford, but the search warrant legitimizing that raid had been issued only for Castry's store, which adjoined his home. This oversight on the part of the raiders was a boon for the bootleggers of Illinois and Williamson County. The very legitimacy of the search warrant was at the heart of the Elias decision, filed April 24, 1925, or just a month before the beginning of Heron's much-heralded revival. Before the Elias decision, information and belief were enough to secure a warrant. Following it, a search warrant could be issued only upon affidavit of facts within the knowledge of a fiant. Clearly, the methods of S. Glenn Young and his fellow zealots were already archaic, a fact of life that failed to impress the latter or to remove from the books some of the cases resulting from their illegal raids. For his part, Young's one-time advocate, Boswell, had before him numerous liquor cases, many of them inherited from his predecessor, the anti-Klansman Delos Duty. I'd say I had a hundred of them when I went in. Duty wasn't about to prosecute them, Boswell said. When the Elias case came in, I had to dismiss those cases. And then, when the law enforcing agency, I'm not going to say it was the Klan, because I don't believe that. Okay, be that as it may, we'll call it the Klan. The clan raised hell with me, saying I was in league with the bootleggers. You could tell them all you damn pleased and show them the Elias case and the Castry case all you wanted to. And then the question is with fellows like that goddamn young, they said it makes no difference, that the end always justifies the means. Note, it must be pointed out that Young had been dead for three months when these cases were dismissed. Finally, as if once and for all to close that bloody chapter in American history, on July 3, 1925, the clan's Heron Herald ceased its financially harried existence. 
a new era? The signs were right and the future seemed promising, but even Trevelyan saw reason to include in his prayerfully optimistic booklet a warning that violence might again beset Heron and Williamson County. It may not be over yet. The volcano may not only send up smoke from time to time, but it may again spout destruction and death. But surely not if this wasted and exhausted community heed the last resort to remedy presented by the editor evangelist Howard S. Williams, the little man from Mississippi who came to us a little while ago bearing a gospel of love into this wilderness of hate. Unfortunately, Trevelyan's darkest fears became a reality. In Heron on April 6, 1926, an election for township officers resulted in a decisive victory for the Klan, and the school board election four days later was similarly one-sided. The final balloting for nomination of county and state officers to be held on April 13th was dreaded by some because a Klan victory here would leave no doubt that the organization was once again flourishing in Williamson County. On the morning of April 13th, Tension was heightened when John Smith, a poll watcher for the Klan, challenged several Catholic voters, among them a nun who had been a resident of Heron for two decades. This last insult sent clenched fists flying, and Smith, no fool, returned to his bullet-scarred garage. There he should have stayed, but strolling out that afternoon, Smith became the target of a gunman in a passing car. Only grazed, he darted back into his garage and slammed the door. Other shots rang out from the European hotel. Closer at hand, still other gunmen in automobiles and on foot thoroughly shot up his place of business, including some of the automobiles inside, but neither Smith nor his armed guards were wounded. Shortly after the barrage of 15 minutes or so had died away, the militia consisting of 20 guardsmen from Carbondale arrived and quickly took positions in front of the bullet-pocked facade of Smith's garage. Grim-faced in their khaki, their bayonets poised, these young men presented an unwelcome sight to the gunmen, who even then were returning on foot to continue their assault. Upon seeing the militia, they hastened to their automobiles, which were parked about a block from the garage and drove away. They did not drive far. Near the Masonic Temple, one of several polling places in the city, the gunmen emerged from their cars, which were left parked and running in the street, and proceeded to walk toward the building. On the lawn before them stood several men, among them John Ford, a leading clansman, and that day a special constable guarding the polls. Warned earlier in the day by the old army doctor, Frank Murrah, that trouble was brewing, Heron policemen George Wright and John Stam parked their car at a street corner a short distance east of the polling place. From this vantage point, Wright saw a noble weaver walk up to Ford, throw a gun on him, then take his pistol. While walking back to one of the gangster's cars parked on the street just east of and adjacent to the Masonic Hall, Weaver was shot in the back by Klansman Max Seesmore. As Weaver fell to the lawn, a shot rang out, felling Ben Seesmore, Max's brother. When Bob Greer stuck his head out the door, Weaver got on his elbow and cut down on Bob, but it did not hit him. Bob dodged back out of the way, Wright added. The bullet remained in the concrete for years and, despite efforts at patching, was still discernible in 1979. Across the street on a public green east of the Heron Hospital lay Harlan Ford with his rifle. As a turtleback roadster turned the corner, a shot rang out, presumably from Harlan's rifle, causing one of the men in the car to throw up his arms and fall back against the seat. 
Meanwhile, Ford himself had been hit. Lying on his back, trying to unjam his rifle, the dying clansman Finally got that shell ejected and it went off. Shot up in the air. He just turned loose and that was the last of him. Harlan Ford was dead. Dead or dying on the lawn lay Noble Weaver and the two Seasmores. In a Buick coupe were two other corpses, Aubrey Orb Treadway, the man reputed to have loaned Charlie Berger the money with which to build Shady Rest, and Charlie Briggs, considered to be one of the men who had fired on the Youngs in the Oakville Bottoms. The car belonged to Berger. Wright continued in his narrative. We were under military orders, whoever the commanding officer was, Major Robert W. Davis of Carbondale. He sent us back out to the hospital to guard the entrance. We did the best we could. I remember one woman, she was permitted an entrance, who came in with her husband. She said, If I was a man and I had a gun, I'd kill you. And I said, Lady, if you were a man and you had a gun, you wouldn't have gotten in. Feelings ran high. It might be mentioned that the aforesaid woman supported the Klan. Conspicuously absent from Heron that day was the state's attorney. The previous night found Boswell in Stonefort, just across the line in Saline County. Years later, he would claim that he had hired cars there on behalf of Orrin Coleman, the Republican candidate for sheriff of Williamson County. The next day, Boswell was in equality with his old friend, Sam Bunker, to electioneer for another old friend, Oscar Carlston, Attorney General of Illinois. A newspaper account states that he and Bunker drove to Shawneetown that April 13th to transact some business for the American Legion. From either Shawneetown or Equality, depending on the source, Boswell made a telephone call. Recognizing his name, the operator said, Oh my god, isn't it awful how many people were really killed over there? Boswell claimed ignorance of the affair that already had provided headlines in a number of newspapers and instructed her to connect him with the Heron City Hall. There, the woman's account of the tragedy was confirmed with details. Said the former state's attorney, I had to make it back over there. I didn't have a gun. Sam wanted to go with me. I said no. He loaned me two guns and ammunition. He talked me into driving his car instead of my car so they wouldn't recognize me. When I got to Heron, I was the happiest guy in the world that I got there alive. Alive, yes. But his absence that day, not only from Heron, but also from the county itself, when many had predicted violence, would later be noted. And the most dedicated of his enemies would charge him with more than negligence. For many in the county, the shock of the battle with its half-dozen dead was of greater concern. Some, like John Smith, who sold what remained of his garage and moved to Florida, realized that the Ku Klux Klan could not withstand the machine guns of the gangsters. What had begun as an idealistic crusade by ministers had degenerated into an exercise in destruction and general lawlessness under the leadership of S. Glenn Young. As if to symbolize the defeat of the Klan, Harlan Ford's relatively modest tombstone in the Heron Cemetery was erected in the shadow of Young's bullet-scarred slab of concrete. Other changes were in order, not the least being the nomination of Orrin Coleman as Republican candidate for sheriff. A school teacher and former principal of the Marion High School, Coleman was a far cry from the gregarious ex-coal miner George Galligan, whose friends included the Shelton brothers. Coleman, a loner noted for his austere manner, was doubly lucky that bloody election day, because just minutes before the shooting began, he had left the Masonic Temple to get a shave at the nearby Jones's Barber Shop. While the bullets flew, the future Williamson County Sheriff lay under a warm towel in that shop. 
Not so lucky was Charlie Berger, who mourned the loss of one of his closest friends. With Charles Chink Schaefer and Alphaeus Gustin, he attended the funeral of Orb Treadway in Paragold, Arkansas. In his sorrow, however, Berger had reason to be grateful, because he was there when the shooting raged. He and the Sheltons and a host of other bootleggers. It might have been him lying in the coffin, surrounded by flowers and the subject of loving words such as are always bestowed upon the dead no matter what their station in life. The calm following the clan's demise was tenuous, actually hardly more than an illusion. In July, the body of a man was found lying at a roadside just north of Heron. In Heron, a flurry of shootings and beatings prompted Mayor Marshall McCormick to issue an order that all unemployed persons carrying guns within the city limits would be jailed. He particularly had in mind the Shelton brothers, who ran a joint on the north end of North Park Avenue, as well as some of their men. Prominent among these were the two walkers, Harry and Ray, and the two arms boys, Floyd and Monroe, better known as Jardown and Blackie. After all, Blackie had the distinction of being the only one arrested following the Masonic Temple shooting, but a quick check with George Galligan had shown Arms to be one of his special deputies, and therefore he was released. In the early hours of July 12th, Harry Walker was talking to Ed Rakasi in the bedroom of the latter's Mildred's place, a roadhouse at the edge of Heron, just before Boyd Harton, better known as Oklahoma Curly, was killed in a gunfight. The following day, Rakasi gave himself up. Not one to discern a message in the shooting death of a drunken troublemaker, Walker continued to frequent roadhouses. Son of former Heron Police Chief Matthew Walker and himself a former policeman and clansman, Harry gained notoriety when Galligan accused him of withholding liquor that had been confiscated in clan raids. Now it seemed that his name was cropping up in print with unusual frequency, and it was rumored that Harry had a hand in the 1925 killing of Otis Clark, one of the defendants in the Heron Massacre trial. Meanwhile, back in Harrisburg, a man with another familiar name, one that was soon to become better known due to the trouble brewing in Williamson County, was helping the local authorities solve a murder. Charlie Berger always liked to be of service to the men who wore badges. On the night of August 5th, 1926, Joe Chesnus and two other young men robbed William Unsell, an elderly rural mail carrier living in Harrisburg. Fearful of identification by the victim, Chesnus shot and killed the old man in Unsell's home three nights after the robbery. The next day, Chesnus was arrested. Alphaeus Gustin, into whose custody Chesnus had been released once before, had told Joe at that time that when he was in trouble to come to him. Now the young man was in real trouble, and as luck would have it, Gustin was one of the three attorneys appointed by the court to represent the impoverished ne'er-do-well. In jail, Chesnus was comforted by his longtime friend, Charlie Berger, who claimed to be, as usual, under arrest himself. Outside, Berger said, was a mob ready to storm the jail for the purpose of dragging Joe off to his own lynching. Confess to him, Berger continued, and he would pull the necessary strings to effect his release, gather his gunmen, and free the young murderer. Fearing that he had little choice in the matter, Chesnus told how he had gone through the window screen, knocking down two chairs in the process, and how in panic he had flashed on the light in his hand and shot Unsel in his bed. It is doubtful if Berger's efforts in the cell actually decided the young man's fate although Chesnus did sign a confession following their conversation. 
But it did prove once again the lengths to which the gangster would go to ingratiate himself with the law. Joe Chestnut was finally hanged in Harrisburg on June 17, 1927. One who watched from atop a building located near the scaffold was Arlie O. Boswell. Years later, he said that seeing Chestnut drop through the trap door was such a shock that he came close to fainting and might have fallen to his own death if his companion hadn't caught him. Next time. In November of 1925, Berger suggested a partnership between the Sheltons and himself. 